Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Molly here, and I have Clarissa with me. Before we talk to you about today's episode, we just wanted to thank all of our listeners for helping us get to over 330,000 downloads. And to those of you who are continuing to support us toward our next goal of 350,000 downloads, we thank you so much too. We also wanted to let you know that our joint venture, Sweet Sobriety, has officially launched. We would love to invite you to join us for unlimited monthly coaching for $25 US each month. We also have educational opportunities and a community platform. We're not going to show you before and after pictures. We're not going to guarantee addiction recovery. No one can do that. We're not going to sell you gimmicks, products, or break your bank account. We will never encourage you to take out loans or sell your rare record collections. You don't need to do that. We're not going to give you the food plan to fix you. You're not broken. We're not going to tell you what that you can't trust yourself. In fact, we'll teach you the skills to rebuild that trust. We're not going to tell you we have all the answers. You already have them. If you'd like more information, check out the foodjunkiespodcast.com or sweetsobriety.ca websites. Okay, today we have Paul Churchill. Paul Churchill was a normal drinker in high school and most of college. He loved to drink. He played several sports in high school and played football at Chapman University, where he majored in business and Spanish. His love for alcohol led him to Granada, Spain, where he bought a bar in January 2006. He walked away from the bar after 34 months since he was drowning himself with alcohol. He attempted the geographical cure, moved back home to Colorado for a year, and then went to graduate school in Seattle at the University of Washington. He then moved to beautiful Bozeman, Montana, where he currently resides. Paul was alcohol-free from 2010 to 2012, but he looks back at that duration of sobriety and says he was a dry drunk and was staying away from alcohol on willpower alone. In 2012, his unconscious mind got the best of him, and he drank after being alcohol-free over two years. Later that same evening, around 2.30 a.m., when gas stations couldn't legally sell alcohol, Paul found himself Googling if he could drink rubbing alcohol or hydrogen peroxide. Talk about picking up right where he left off. Paul struggled to quit drinking for another couple of years until September 7th, 2014. In the summer of 2014, there was a DUI, release of employment from a job, and a failed suicide attempt. After reaching out to family, specific friends, starting a podcast, a sobriety counter app, selecting a sponsor, eating right and exercising, Paul Churchill took his last drink of alcohol on September 7th, 2014 and got his life back. So before we get into this interview, it was short, but it was so impactful, you guys. And Clarissa and I wanted to have a conversation to provide some perspective on what you're about to hear. So I'm going to hand the mic over to Clarissa and just let her kind of kick off where we should get started on this conversation. Yeah, I really think that I, first of all, I love his energy and I loved when he was talking about, you know, oh, I want to be recovered forever, but A, I only have today and I've been humbled a few times. And that obviously speaks to the story that you just shared. And I think also it taps into our conversation with him when he talked about community and the importance of community and how just being dry drunk, as he calls it. For some people, I think they just want to quit sugar to lose weight. 
And that may be some people's truth, but for those of us who have addiction, we really need to go next level and dig a little deeper and get to know ourselves. And, you know, it is definitely something that I think both you and I feel in our community that diet culture can also play a role in, you know, recovering from food addiction. And we just have to be very mindful of that. You know, when he was talking about people, you know, quitting drinking to lose weight, he was saying you might gain some more LBs and that's just, you know, more of you to love. However, he was also addressing the fact that some of those gained LBs might be related to nutrient deficiencies. And I think that that is something that is very important for our community to speak about too, is that, you know, this isn't necessarily, we've been feeding ourselves probably or restricting ourselves in, you know, maybe a very violent way for a long time. And now once we start treating our bodies with respect, we can't predict the way they will change and form and that no matter what, they deserve our respect. And that dropping a certain amount of LBs does not mean that you have achieved food addiction recovery. Food addiction recovery has nothing to do with being in a right-sized body. Food addiction recovery is having peace and freedom around food. And so I think we have wanted to have this conversation for a while and just to be mindful that if you're tapping into a community that is focused specifically on weight loss, is that the right goal for you? Because I think even when we hear some of these conversations around food plans, it is, oh, you know, I don't eat this and I don't eat that because of insulin and blood sugar. And my response to be to that would be, does it affect dopamine? Is it a reward pathway for you? Because dopamine and insulin are two different things. Of course, we have to be mindful about our blood sugar, but predominantly because, you know, if we eat foods that affect our blood sugar, it's the drop in blood sugar and then it wanting to get back to homeostasis, which can increase the food thoughts and necessarily like maybe cravings. But that doesn't mean that that food that affects your blood sugar is addictive. So just, you know, we've had this conversation in Vera's Facebook group a lot lately, you know, whether you're eating plant-based starches, rice, you know, be true to you. If this food is hedonic, then absolutely remove it. But if it is just about blood sugar, be mindful if this is diet culture that's affecting you. So yeah, that didn't really have that much to do with Paul's interview. It, it does in the fact that, you know, we speak to him a lot about alcohol because alcohol is his story, but certainly we wanted to highlight alcohol can be any of our story, especially with, you know, the sugar component of it, or like those simple carbohydrates and the way that they break down and how they can play out in our body can feel very similar, you know? And so we find with our bariatric communities that there can be this increase in alcohol use because we can no longer get in that those food sources that we would have sought the dopamine with. But I also think that it plays into the conversation with Paul because it is so like every time he says alcohol, right, we could just fill in the blank with whatever our drug of no choice is. So whatever that is, I think his story and his experiences are so relatable and everything that people in, in his Cafe Ari community go through, I think people in our community also go through. And it is important to think about that. I think it's also an important conversation, what you were just saying, because when we think about 
removing things first, as far as like what is lighting up our brain, like a Christmas tree, like what are the drug of no choice foods? Then we remove for medical things. So if you have real medical things going on, right? Type two diabetes, type one diabetes, right? Whatever it might be, gluten intolerance, celiac, dairy intolerance, lactose, you know, intolerance, whatever it might be, you have to remove those things then too. It's not necessarily, right? It would be if you had a peanut allergy, you wouldn't be eating peanuts. And it's not because it's lighting up your brain with dopamine, but it's because there's a medical need, right? And we want you guys to understand that we understand this is so different than if this was a specific substance like alcohol. This is so bio-individual to you guys. And he goes on to talk about, because we ask him about sugar cravings in alcohol recovery. And he goes on to talking about like how he gives permission to people to like eat that tub of ice cream, I think is what he says. Right. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, to let you guys know one, we do talk a bit about that, but also, you know, he sees that as a form of harm reduction. And I would agree with him as a person who used to treat people with methamphetamine use disorder, alcohol use, whatever, right. Getting off methamphetamine and going for marijuana is technically a harm reduction. Getting off alcohol and going for a pint of ice cream is technically harm reduction. And that's not everybody's story, but those are some people's story. You know, some people have, that is their story. And this isn't meant to be permission giving either so much as it is that we can honor and respect that everybody's on their own journey. I also think that what you were saying, Clarissa, like really kind of brings up this idea. We asked him a bit later about how to know, right? Like what are these signs that maybe things are not going so well for us or whatever. And, you know, he said, when you ask yourself that question, like, do I have a problem with, again, like fill in the blank that maybe Mm -hmm. you already have the answer. And I don't know that that's as clear cut with, again, something like what we're dealing with, because maybe some of these foods are giving us responses that are like, biochemical, not like in the addiction kind of way, but like you're saying, like in the insulin or even blood sugar spikes and drops. So now we're like feeling right. We are biologically wired, like to go for more food then kind of Mm -hmm. deal. And so I think we can ask ourselves that, like frame it as if I'm wondering, do I have a problem with sugar or potatoes? Right. We can ask ourselves that question, but if now we're being it's being framed that if I have to ask myself that question, then maybe the answer is yes. I think that's problematic. And just a reminder that like, this is so much more nuanced, mm. but when it comes to a specific thing, like alcohol, where we know ethanol is the addictive thing or methamphetamine, right. Or heroin or whatever it might be, that question, it's just framed very differently, or at least in my experience, working with clients mm-hmm. who, who struggle with that. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, no, for sure. Like if we are talking ultra processed foods, I rarely have worked with anyone where they were like, oh, this isn't a problem for me. All of them are a problem. But if they're talking about, is rice a problem for me? Some people think in the beginning, fruit is necessarily a problem for them. And then sometimes they learn after a while when they're a little bit more stable and we've worked together for them to rebuild trust in the signals their body is giving them and practice that interceptive awareness that then they realize like, oh, maybe that was just like, something I heard on another I was going to say, I think there's like two things or... with the fruit, right? There's yeah. like two things with the fruit. Either it's noise. They've heard noise. You know, somebody has said, don't eat fruit because it's just pure sugar or whatever. Or they've been so restrictive in the past that when they do quote unquote, allow themselves the fruit, there's like this over, right? Like there's the compensatory behavior the mm-hmm. other way. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Again, I'm not saying that if it's your truth, that fruit is activating for you, that that it's not your truth, but. Well, I think that could also be a harm reduction approach too, Mm. right? Is to Mm -hmm. say, Hey, at this point, I'm not sure 
about the fruit. And so I want to take it out for 30 days. And then maybe if I feel like I want to at that time, I know what's best for me because I'm doing the best I can. And so I'm just going to walk along them in that journey, right? Because really, if it is meeting their goals and their focus, who are we to judge, right? That's what harm reduction is about, not being judgmental, not just allowing that individual to show up and tell you what they are feeling, thinking, and and really to help suss it out of them to see where they want to go from here. What are the things they want to be able to eat? What would they look forward to a lunch? I, you know, everybody wants to show up and get a a food plan. And I was like, okay, but we're going to do this together. And, you know, even from our study, we saw that works very well, very well. It, It allows people to feel empowered in their eating. And that's really why we created this show to kind of let people know there's so many different options and that, you know, what is true for you is the most important thing. Yeah. And so from the thinking like from that harm reduction and self-determination kind of place, I mean, we talked to him about stigma and you mm-hmm. remember what he said about stigma and what did he say? Yeah. He said, you know, he really thinks that it's a lot more about, we believe there's a lot of stigma out there, but if we, you know, are tell somebody, oh, you know, I'm opting for wholeness instead of falseness. And really we start to share about it. It is an authentic invitation for others to open up about what's true for them. And he said, yeah, there was like, you know, two or three cases, but for the most part, it's more about what we think. And I mean, I could certainly relate, right? When I was in alcohol, I couldn't really tell people I was like newly sober. I didn't feel confident in myself. I always expected it to come back and that I wasn't free from it again. I needed some time and space in order to to really be able to say, oh, you know, I was an alcoholic because I felt like, okay, if it happens again, I now have a recovery plan and all of that. And that can be true for the food. You don't have to go around and tell everyone in the beginning, you know, that this is what you're doing. You pick and say, oh, maybe it's an allergy. Maybe it's something else. But I promise you, once you get to that place where you know how to eat and you know how to live, that is when you're able to have these conversations And I mean, never have I had the experience where I told someone and they said, like, shame on you for eating in a way that makes you feel great. It just doesn't happen. So there's definitely societal stigma in general, but we have to be really mindful that most of the people in our lives care about us. And so that stigma doesn't usually happen within our family. And if people do get defensive about it, it's probably because, you know, they may have their own separate issues, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't still speak your truth and, you know, stand up for the foods that you can eat. And I also loved how he kind of reframed sobriety that, you know, it's not this thing we have to do that he feels kind of, you know, that for those who don't get to do it, it's it's rather unfortunate because they don't get the opportunity to rewrite their life. They don't get to spend their time. Maybe it's journaling or speaking to others on such an authentic level where you really get to know what you like and shut down the noise of who you think the world thinks you should be. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I think that's where like coming from that framework of harm reduction, self-determination, all of that, right? It allows us to really break through this idea of stigma and realize that 
it's our internalized, it's our own story, right? More often than not, it's ourselves standing in our own way. Mm-hmm. And the way he really talked about that, you know, like just really owning, I mean, I think it was like so obvious in his answer to our signature question, right. Where he said like, there was a time in my life when I would have told him this one thing. Right. But now I've said this other thing because it's like just trusting that the path that you're on is getting you somewhere else. And that is not necessarily going to be a catastrophe that when we can recognize that, okay, something's got to change and I am the master of my own destiny kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of like being like, oh, I've screwed it all up and let's just sink the boat. It's okay. How can, like you said, how can I rewrite my life? How can I get to know myself? How can I use these powers for good rather than destruction? Because everything that you have in you that is like taking you on this path further and further down the destruction path or whatever, however you want to describe it, Mm-hmm. Those same skills, those same beliefs, those whatever, right? If we can reframe them, if we can w- allow you to see what you haven't been able to see yet, right? Like mm-hmm. shine the light on it. That was the part I think I love the most is like, he basically said, I couldn't be who I am today. I mean, he didn't say it in so many words, but that was yeah, my takeaway. He, he said he was without that path. Yeah. He was never on the wrong path. Yeah. And I think when we're in it, it's so hard to see out of it. And if you had asked me through the ages of 19 to 36, if I was on the right path, I would have said, no, but all paths led me to Vera, all paths. I were little planting the seeds on my road to recovery. And it doesn't mean that in that time period, there wasn't amazing, incredible people I met and relationships I had and experiences that occurred. And, you know, had I not gone on that journey, I wouldn't be here where it's like, I never thought I'd be doing a podcast with Vera, being involved in a research study that's published on best practices for ultra processed food addictions, treatments, like a clinical audit of it. Like, like all of this was beyond my wildest dreams. So if I were, did I would Stick say that I was on yeah. the 100% the best path ever. Right. And I don't and if, want another path. This is the no. path. Yeah. But, and like, again, it's just, I never gave up. And that's no. where I think our listeners, yeah. you know, if you're not where you want to be yet, doesn't mean you're not going to get there. It just that. means yeah. that there's more pieces to your puzzle. There's more, you know, stones on your pathway right. and that you will get there and just yeah. don't stop believing in yourself. That's it. And if we're going to look at that history and stigmatize it, now it's like basically poo-pooing on Clarissa five years ago, four mm-hmm. years ago, three years, however long ago, 10 years ago. Right. And she deserves to be honored. Like she got you to where you are. I mean, piece parts of her. Right. And so, and this is true for any of our, you know, anybody who takes a listen to this, like when we show up with this stigma, with this belief that somehow we're bad, wrong, broken, whatever, like we just continue to lose sight of who we are today and how far we've come and how far we can still go. And I think that was probably, again, like one of my biggest takeaways from Paul is just how inspiring and hope filled he is for Mm -hmm. people on this journey and how he just honors and holds space for people no matter what. And his, his podcast recovery elevator is just so beautiful. He no longer is like the primary host. There's a gal who does it now, but for years he did it. And, you know, somebody could be hours sober and he wanted to hear their story, Mm. you know? And I think that's just so important. And that's, what's inspired me to like, want to do the sweet sobriety stories, all of that. Right. So I just, thank you so much. You know, I don't know that I have much more to say about this. I really think they should listen to the interview, but you know, 
knowing that that was his kind of take on it is what really has inspired me to want to like get to know people hours in days in, you know, it doesn't have to be years for these stories because that is what inspires others to be willing to be courageous and try this new way of living. So, right. And isn't it those out first hours in where you actually see the courage, resilience, and like things people are truly capable of? Cause yes. that, those first hours in nothing's harder right? Those first days in like that is, that's the raw and that's, that's so beautiful. I think. Amen. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks Paul for being here and uh, let's get to it. Yeah. Enjoy the show. Awesome. Thank you so much again for being here with us today, Paul. I was especially interested in talking to you because I am located in Bozeman, Belgrade, Montana, and your name has been in my brain for years now because we have worked with shared individuals. So you were first, you know, brought to my attention at least five years, if not more ago. And I've listened to the podcast and I've watched your community grow. And I'm just so happy to have you here. Yeah. Thank you, Molly. I'm honored to be here. And to chat with you, Molly, and you, Clarissa, this is going to be a really fun conversation. I'm excited to get to know your audience as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So in that, you know, in that vein, can you just talk to us what it was like for you before recovery and like, what was your aha moment and what is life like now? Sure. I think the best words to describe it are two. It's chaos and then order. It was it was pure chaos when I was drinking. It was, there was a, a disconnection and I feel the body, the mind, the soul, the spirit the organs, the heart, everything were seeking something because there was a lot of imbalance internally within myself. And I don't beat myself up for that or, or blame other people, but I do think it's an environmental thing. I think there was, there was coping strategies that I had developed early in life and drinking was one of them. There was a reason why during the pandemic liquor stores were deemed essential because it's a fantastic medicine for a lot of people until it backfires. But uh, I used alcohol as a way to cope. It was fantastic. And then I became physically addicted to it. And, and then came the, the slow down, downward spiral of addiction, which, which a lot of people don't realize they're in. And we can probably cover some of that stuff later of why alcohol is so dangerous. But uh, before I quit drinking, there was this chaos of what is going on here? Things aren't quite panning out. I had plan A, B, C, and D in life. And then now I'm on plan, plan Z, right? But fortunately, I listened to the body and I had so much help from other people that, that I did, I did stop drinking and, uh, will it be forever? I don't know. I hope so. That's the plan, but I have been humbled several, several times with that, or I really don't say I'm, I'm done forever. And, uh, my goals for today. And, you know, I, again, I, I hope I don't drink again, but I'm really just doing it today. But you know, after I took that last drink, it wasn't pure bliss, right? It took a long time, Molly and Clarissa for, for the body to find a new homeostasis. You know, I think the, the healing from an addiction it doesn't really matter what the addiction is, happens spiritually, mentally, and physically. And then the healing process is the reverse order. It's it, it happens physically first, then mentally, and then spiritually. And that's what I went through. So day one, it wasn't the best day of my life, of course, but uh, very slowly with a lot of help from other people. I think AA is an absolute fantastic program. And I'm very thankful that I had the the courage to start a project called Recovery Elevator. And I did that mostly selfishly to create accountability and with accountability spurs community almost always. And I'm very thankful to say my last drink was, was over eight years ago on September 7th, 2014. So I just heard you mention a little bit about how, you know, addiction kills us 
spiritually, then mentally, and then physically. And when we get into recovery, we heal the opposite way in reverse order. Can you kind of speak a little bit more to that to help our audience understand what you meant by that? For sure. You know, the last part of the destruction phase is the physical component. And this can be tested on one huge night of drinking, you know, in the colleges all across the country, we hear, hear stories of acute alcohol poisoning and, and people don't make it out of that. But if it's not acute in one night, it'll, it'll happen over time. You know, think liver, think pancreas, your, your body starts to shut down after enough toxins and poison are entered into your system. And I think that paradigm is shifting where it's weird when we say, oh, we don't drink. Oh, I don't drink poison anymore. Like, again, that paradigm is shifting where at least that I've seen in the last 10 years is it's more acceptable which is weird to think that it, it's becoming, that it wasn't acceptable in the first place. But, uh, I, I, you know, in, in the first part of the departure into addiction, the spirituality component, I think addictions are disconnection. I do. And I, one could say the opposite side of that would be the opposite of addiction is connection. So first we come disconnected to, I think it's our tether to the universe, our tether to God, whatever you really want to call it. And then with that, we use the alcohol to connect. Everybody forms a very deep, intense bond if, if there's an addiction to something. And for, for my audiences with alcohol, we form this almost spiritual connection with alcohol. And it works for a long time. And as I mentioned, until it backfires. And then mentally, there's an obsession that takes over, which begins running the life is, is alcohol slowly goes up the, the totem pole of priority. It's, uh, you know, we always have to have alcohol. We are, con we are consumed with thoughts, how much we're going to drink, when we're going to drink, if we're going to drink as, as much as other people, more other people, how are we going to hide it? And so there's this mental obsession that becomes out of balance. We're warped. And then, and then physically is the last component. It was really a slow suicide. One can say if they keep riding this road of addiction. And on the reverse order, the physical component is the first to heal. When we remove the toxins, alcohol, there's the cells in the back of your mouth, your throat, the esophagus, the pancreas, the liver that say, thank you so much. We need, we need a breath of fresh air there. Yeah, for not poisoning us. And so the good news with the healing component, you don't have to do much. The body or the intelligence of the body will slowly curb you in the right direction. I say you don't have to do much. You do have to stay away from alcohol and you do have to enter the recovery world. I'm a firm believer in that. I think of a big mistake that people make, and I made it too, is they just quit drinking. That's the, that's where you don't go to AA. You don't, you don't find a support community. And I think you're selling yourself short too. If you just quit drinking, there's a term called a dry drunk. It's where you, you have all the kind of the same reasons why you drank. You're just not drinking. It's like you're unmedicated. And so there's a beautiful community waiting on the other side of that. And if you just quit drinking, there's this loving, accepting, non-judgmental community awaiting you, but you're not stepping into it. And so I, I think the physical component, it's different for everybody, but a lot of people quit drinking to lose weight. And that's great. If some people lose weight, I did but there's another large subset of people that gain weight, which is absolutely fantastic. A, there's more of you to love, but B, calories from alcohol, from beer, wine, liquor, and booze, it's basically like moldy peach gummy worms. It's not good. So when you quit drinking, your body is screaming for proper nourishment. And if you gain a couple LBs or 20, like, who really cares? You're healthy. You're much healthier than you were before. And then I think the spirituality component, and I don't like to put timeframes around this. But let's do it for a second. I think the physical is anywhere from six months to a year. The mental com component, and there's overlap, jumps in about the eight-month mark to the two-year mark. And the spirituality component happens around the two to three-year mark. At least that's what happened for me and is similar for a lot of people. But with the spirituality side, I think it has to be the tail in there. 
because a lot of it, that connection is made in, in times of repose, right? In times when we're sitting or in times when we're, the mind isn't going absolutely crazy. Now I had zero chance of sitting in repose Lotus style my first month, <laughs> the first year away from alcohol. It was just too much for my nervous system. So at the tail end of that is, is when we are settled enough, there's the systems, there's coherence with the body, the mind, the heart and soul where we can let these life synchronicities show up. Some call it God, some call it a higher power. I don't know. I've, I've been I'm studying Carl Jung lately, the, the 19th century Swiss psychologist, and he talks a lot about synchronicities and, and almost the breadcrumbs of life. And those are highly spiritual moments. And those happened before I quit drinking, but it was like once a year or maybe once every three years. But now I'm in a, a really beautiful spot where those synchronicities happen daily, weekly, and uh, it's confirming it is. Right. I, I think about, you know, how you're describing this and, and kind of weaving your own personal story into that. And I think about the clients that I work with now. So I've really transitioned from working with clients that can, you know, with methamphetamine and, and heroin and alcohol and cocaine and, you know, K2 spice, you know, all of those things. And really I've transitioned more into working with people who their story is ultra processed food addiction and everything you're saying, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can think of this person and this person and this person who can totally identify with, with what you're saying. And, and I'm curious to know, did you, or thinking about this, like thinking back, did you ever notice if sugar or processed foods were a problem for you before alcohol or after you stopped using alcohol, did your cravings increase for sugar? What was that process like when you put down the alcohol? Yeah. Good question, Molly. I think the sugar craving is alive and real. One, one other thing with alcohol is it's, I think alcohol is probably the most dangerous drug on the planet. There's a lot of, a lot of data to back that up. It kills more people each year than every other drug combined. You combine alcohol with sugar <laughs> and sugar can be said was the, the catalyst for the modern day slave trade <laughs> in the 16th century, right? It was just that addictive of a substance sugar. And so you combine the two and, and my goodness. So I tell people when they quit drinking green light on the ice cream, go for it, go big. It's called harm reduction, right? And you can, you can tackle the sugar later. You can. And if you want to tackle it for good, go zero sugar. You can't, I mean, it's hard, but I've recently in the last couple of years, I'm not fully versed in processed foods word addiction, but yes, I think the processed food addiction is a major factor in all of this. In fact, I read a book called breath by James Nestor. And he talks about how our current diet with processed foods wreaks havoc on our body and mostly our, our breathing and our breath and our nate and our sinus cavities. Apparently 400 years ago, everybody had perfect teeth <laughs> and you, you insert processed soft foods that are meant to, to be on a shelf for three months, six months. And it's not good for us. Yeah. I mean, it's like the corporate stuff and it's going to be hard to, to break that paradigm, but it's just really done it at the individual level. And now we're seeing large organic sections and in, in the grocery stores. Yeah. But I think the processed food thing is huge because we, we don't know it, but at the cellular level, we are addicted to processed foods. We are, it's just, and we deviate that from a couple of days. We, we make an internal declaration. Oh, I'm going on this great healthy diet. feels great to make that statement, but your body will revolt. It will absolutely revolt. In fact, your body will create chemicals inside your body to pull you back into the norm, to pull you back where you were because the body and the mind, they don't like the unknown. And to depart from processed foods on paper sounds great. You know the benefits, but it's really, it's really hard to do because you're going against, you're going against the chemicals of your body. It, it, it just takes time. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think like in the beginning, it's kind of the same when you get to that level and you're like, oh, I'm going to stop drinking. And then you find yourself drinking again, right? It's same happens with the processed foods as well, right? It sounds like a good plan. And then you're like, okay, maybe, maybe this is more than just being unable to moderate these things. Maybe there is some level of addiction at play here. So I'm also wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your cafe recovery elevator. Like how did you come up with the idea? What should people know if they want to join? Do you think it's also a place, maybe some of our clients who've given up alcohol to forgo their sugar cravings would find a community as well? Sure. Thank you for the for the question, Clarissa. So Recovery Elevator is a podcast. It comes out every Monday. We're on episode 400 next Monday. And it started, the idea showed up about two months after I quit drinking. I was going to an AA meeting and I told myself, I got this. I don't need to be going to the meeting. I was hiding behind pine trees and didn't want people to see me. But there was almost this moment of clarity, like, Paul, you don't got this, buddy. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> it's been a rough go the last decade with alcohol. You don't got this after two months. So I, I, I knew I needed to do more. I got a sponsor, did the 12 steps, again, a fantastic program. And I also started a podcast for accountability for myself selfishly. And what that evolved, uh, people eventually started to listen and we started these Facebook groups. Fast forward to today, we have four Facebook groups called Cafe Ari. There is a monthly fee, but we always offer scholarships. You just name your price, basically, if, if the monthly fee is too much. Um, and what it is, it's a group of like-minded people who wish to ditch the booze together. We have online webinars, our chats. We do accountability pairings. We do book club. We do movie club. Yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, loving community of about 1,500 members. And you know, the, the focal point is alcohol, right? But we do have members who have gambling issues, who have other issues with, with different substances because the mechanics of an addiction are, are really all the same. And within our groups, you see a post about sugar and you see a post uh, about other substances or other behaviors and then subgroups start. <laughs> so it's really wonderful to see that. Again, our focal point is alcohol, but I do think it would be a fit for other people if they just replace alcohol with, with something else. Yeah. And I was thinking too, you know, it's one of those things where I know for myself, like alcohol wasn't really my issue. It was pretty easy to put it down, walk away from it. But at this point in my life, I'm kind of a, you know, what I would call like a non-drinker just because I know that if I were to consume alcohol, that now all of a sudden bucket of ice cream in the freezer sounds really good to me. And I know if I go for a scoop of that ice cream, now I'm eating the whole tub before it's, it's over. And so we, we were wondering if, you know, people who are non-drinkers, you know, if that would be, if it's exclusive, I guess, to saying like, I am an alcoholic, or is it just people who want to not drink anymore? Like, is there, are there requirements? Yeah. I actually think that's where the magic will happen within this community is, is when people join seeking an environment where alcohol isn't the glue, or they find themselves in an environment where they don't like drinks being spilled on them, or I need to be careful. I frame this I find there's a lot of inauthenticity outside of the recovery world and that gets old fast. So even though I took my drink a long time ago, I love mixing with the people in recovery. I love interacting with people in, in my community. And obviously people from your community would have the same foundations, but we're versed in a different language that allows us to go internal and we can speak about our emotions. And I feel like we can be more human. So correct. I've, I've known for a couple of years or the idea has been there that when people start signing up for our services or perhaps, oh, we, we do sober travel trips as well. We do in-person retreats. We have a lot of in-person meetups. But when people join, for example, a sober travel trip, not because they have a, a problem with alcohol or consider themselves alcoholic, but they're seeking a more altruistic environment where they can be themselves. It's accepted more and it's non-judgmental. So absolutely. 
That's so wonderful. And I, I love that because you're right. There is this level of, because of the vulnerability that is required, I think, for our recovery stories to progress or, or our journeys to progress, we need to have a vulnerability, which means we have to be that much more authentic. And you're right. There is a language there. So that's really good to know that even if somebody's listening and they don't necessarily identify with alcohol use disorder or being an alcoholic or whatever label you know, they want to put on it, but that to know that there is this community that really feeds on this idea of being authentic and connecting it on this deeper level. I just really appreciate that you have provided that. We want to switch gears a bit because we really do want to get into this idea of recovery. And especially I love your podcast that you always have a guest and, you know, sometimes they're hours off the alcohol, sometimes they're years. And, and I just think that we need to talk more about, like you said, the the mechanics of addiction and then recovery and and what we can do. But so before we get there, can we just talk about like the signs that if somebody's listening, it might be a good idea to let the alcohol go. Yeah. So there's so much intelligence in the body with the gut intuition, what your heart is telling you, you're going to have a, you're going to have an idea most likely long before your last drink, if it comes to that, but the body will start chirping. Your mind will start chirping. The the hangovers are going to become more intense, right? You're not going to, you're going to build a tolerance. You're not going to get drunk enough. You're not gonna be able to drink the way you want to drink. There's going to be a voice that's saying, are we drinking like other people? You're going to be monitoring people. You're probably going to be shuffling normal drinkers out of your life and surrounding yourself by people who drink more. Now, unfortunately, that voice will be be squashed because the attachment, the chemicals of attachment are, are much more addictive. Like we need community, we need friends. And so the, one of the hardest parts about quitting drinking is, is you won't have friends, right? There's a stigma there, there is. And so there's this monumental question of, you know, do I have a drink problem? Am I an alcoholic? And it can be reduced to a simple question is if you ever, if you ever wonder, do you have a problem with alcohol? You, you might've answered the question right there. And that's probably the time to do something about it. Cause what I've seen is this is progressive. It's very rare when people <laughs> slowly moderate themselves out of this. And in fact, I don't think I've ever heard a story about that. I've in the long run, I've yet to hear a story of moderation of that working. And so, yes, when your body starts giving you signs that it might be a good idea to ditch the booze, I would explore that. I would explore that and give yourself a test. Hey, in 30 days, like that's, that's a long time. I give it a week, you know, and, and just see, you let your body tell you what's going on and, and be careful with that as well, because alcohol, I do feel is the most dangerous drug on the planet to, to withdraw from, right? So prolonged drinking can, can have detrimental effects if you stop cold Turkey. So can you explain to our audience, what does it mean to get off the elevator? How does someone do that? Yeah. Okay. So the podcast is recovery elevator. And that's almost a metaphor for getting off the elevator is in the addiction process is down. It goes downward. You can hit the button, stop digging and get off at any time. That's, that's the synopsis of that. But the question of how does someone get off the elevator? That's an unbelievable question. And the last several years of my life, I've been dedicated to that. And it's, I'm very blessed. That's my job right now. It's my career. I feel called to do it. I'm happy to do it. And I don't want to come here and say I have the answer to it, but I can, I can give you some fundamentals to it. Their community is a major component with that honesty, authenticity. You first need to get authentic and honest with yourself. And addiction, it really represents part of your personalities that are very out of balance or something inside of you that is screaming for attention. And it's, it's in a lot of pain. And again, alcohol is the medicine that, that really lets you address that in a temporary way. 
So how does somebody get off the elevator? I think now in 2022, we're in an incredible time to quit drinking as in there's never been more resources. Now I, I wrote a book called alcohol is shit. And the chapter that I removed and the editorial phase was the current state of addiction. It went deep into success rates. And so how does someone get off the elevator? How do we deal with this? We don't know. The success rates are very low. Success rates of 30-day, 60-day, 90-day inpatient treatment are very low. The good news is you can always start again. I once read that 2.5 people out of 1,000 make it to two years away from alcohol. That's not a lot. Again, the good news is you can start again. And I deleted that chapter. And I don't even like saying stats because some people might hear that and be like, well, <laughs> ain't happening, right? It's just like enough to prevent them to get into the recovery world. But I've said, you know, the hardest thing I've ever done is to quit drinking, which, which I believe it's also been the most rewarding, but that's also inaccurate because the hardest thing I've ever done was to continue down the path of addiction. So it really with the two, the path of least resistance is quitting drinking. It's, it's facing the pain. It's, it's going through it, letting the body detox and move forward in life without alcohol. So how does someone get off the elevator? Again, we, I think we're in the wild west still right now, figuring this stuff out. Community support. Absolutely. There is a large emergence of psychedelic medicines, re-emergence. Bill W., the founder of AA was, was a big advocate for LSD in the fifties, how it helped him with his depression, but it's all coming full circle. We have shamanistic practices in the, in the Amazon using medicines such as uh, ayahuasca, San Pedro, which is mescaline and ibogaine. I have spoken with many heroin addicts that have, have ditched heroin with ibogaine, which is a, a plant medicine based out of Africa. So it, it's a comparison with community support and uh, not a comparison, but uh, what is the word? <laughs> they go together, shall I say. It's a multifaceted. And so how does someone get off the elevator? I don't think it's a pill. I don't think it's a quick fix. I think it is a long road of, of healing. But I think the Native Americans had it right when they looked at an addiction or there was an illness, that it was a representation that something is out of, a, out of balance with the community. It's almost like the canary in the mind, the canary in the mind. And so I think society, we're coming around with that depression, not just addiction, but depression, anxiety, autoimmune disorders, and I feel even cancers, and really the majority of our Western illnesses these days are a representation of an environment that something is out of balance. And so how does someone get off the elevator? Well, everybody has to help that person get off the elevator because we're all realizing that we're, we're part of the problem and we all have to take part of the healing process. Absolutely. And so you've mentioned community a couple times now, I mean, multiple times. And so obviously, you know, and we agree, it's a very important component to recovery in writing the book, in your years of experience, any research you've done, any reading you've done, you know, can you explain a bit more about why community is so important? Are there statistics? Has there been research or is there evidence that suggests community is like the deciding factor or a deciding factor? Sure. I'll comment on the flip side first. I just read in Dr. Gopper Mate's new book, The Myth of Normal. Fantastic. He talks about loneliness and the dangers of isolation and how the rate has doubled from 20 to 40%. I think in the last 20 years, people who've polled it has doubled in the last 20 years that people say they, they have felt loneliness or they experienced loneliness, isolation. And they even, I don't know how they do this, but they say, you know, loneliness is dangerous as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Again, I don't know how you scientifically pair that, but I believe it. And most anthropologists agree that the happiest human being were hunter gatherers. And, you know, how do you study that? How do you go back 30 or 40,000 years ago or 15,000 years ago? Well, you don't have to. You can go to places like Indonesia where there's a thousand languages spoken. 
which means there are a thousand different tribes <laughs> of hunters and gatherers, and they don't have the rates of addiction, illness, and disease and cancers that we do. And so, you know, again, how do we do this? Well, I think we're so, how do we do this? You know, what new novel idea or approach do we have to think of? I don't think we need to. I think we go back to our roots. We are nature and we, we have to come back to that or we're done as a species, but we are 99% related to chimpanzees. We are pack animals, similar to goats. We have to have community to survive. We won't, we don't survive. In fact, the Greeks used to banish human beings as a punishment, put them outside the city walls, knowing that you don't make it, you don't survive without a pack. So community is extremely important. There are chemicals inside the body, namely serotonin and oxytocin that are released in communal settings, we are wired to help other people, wired to be there for our fellow human being. And we used to live in communities. We didn't live in these branch, these seg or secluded apartment complexes where, you know, I read something to the amount of square footage that we have per person has tripled in the last hundred years. Does that make sense? Like our houses are bigger, our rooms are bigger. Let's let the baby cry in the other room alone. I don't know what parenting book says that I'm not a father, but I've, I've also read this other, you know, another emerging literature is to no, we have to go back to how we used to do this in native cultures and in indigenous cultures. And it's nothing new that we have to discover. I, I really do think it's going back to our roots. I totally agree. I mean, community is where we are seen, we are heard. And like, finally, we feel like we're not alone, but a lot of us have, you know, friends and families when we begin this recovery journey and, you know, for the individuals we work with, that means, you know, trying to get them to understand that I don't eat processed foods anymore. And, you know, I don't eat sugar anymore. And I know, you know, with alcohol, it's still the same thing. We often, you know, our friends and family, that was a communal celebratory thing that we all did together. So how do we explain to our friends and family about this disease and what we need for our recovery in a way that they can understand that? Sure. Great question, Clarissa. And, and again, I, I think it's, it's the norm, but it, it, it's strange to tell people that we are opting for wholeness instead of falseness, right? Because a lot of people's relationships, including myself, are, are propped up with the glue alcohol or myself in the past, right? So it, 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 it shouldn't be that way to tell people, hey guys, I'm quitting sugar, you know, my body's shutting down. Oh, what are you, are you kidding me? It's that, that is, that is shifting. That is softening, fortunately. And I have even seen the, the, the needle shift in the last 10 years while doing this. But on the flip side of that, you know, that the stigma, the stigma is interesting, isn't it? Is, I think it's mostly fabricated within ourselves. It's this voice that doesn't want to ditch the booze or doesn't want to get off processed food because it's the known. The body, the body, especially the brain, doesn't do well in the unknown. It doesn't function well in the unknown. It, it doesn't. And so I think a big part of the stigma is, is self-imposed. And from what I have experienced and I have, look, we're, 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 we're coming up on 10 million listens. And I've heard so many stories of people we call it burning the ships is the stigma is also somewhat fake. It's not real. And when you burn the ships or you get authentic with yourself and somebody else, it's almost an invitation for the other person to also be authentic. You, you don't know how many times, especially at the beginning phases of this, when I was, you know, Hey, I got, I got a drinking problem and I don't drink anymore. The other person would say, Oh, you know what? My uncle struggles with this or my brother. Oh, you know, I struggle with depression. So it's almost this, 
that was an answer that somebody, I told that somebody like, you know, I really struggle with depression. And so it's almost this authentic invitation, olive branch, shall we say, for somebody else to open up as well. And they need that. The other person, the normal drinker as well, needs that authentic conversation to survive. Now, I have heard a couple stories of frigidness of people being closed off to that. And I've, I've, there's a response when people start, I would used to get defensive. Like they would ask, how much do you drink? Well, what happened? And what I found out, those are people that are, they're also struggling with alcohol. They're asking for self-discovery. They're in comparisons. Well, wait a second. If this person quit, I think I might have a problem. So, you know, I don't want to put percentages on it, but really like one to 2% of people will fully cut you out of their life. But here's the thing. It's a fantastic filter. Me not quitting drinking has, has removed those people from my life automatically. I didn't have to do the work. There was no nasty fight, nasty breakup. It, they just left. Thank you, alcohol or sobriety. That, and that brings me to this question of, you know, so, but hearing that, like you said, that isolation, that loneliness, it can be really scary, right? It brings up these fears of, like you said, that I'm going to have nobody and it's really hard, right? Until we've seen the other side. I mean, and I can't speak for Clarissa, but I know for me, like my life today, I could have never imagined when I was in all the mess, when I was in all of the chaos, right? Like you can't, it's so hard to get somebody to believe. So how can we shift our mindset from believing that giving up this drug of choice, whatever it might be, or maybe it's a behavior, maybe it's gambling, maybe it's watching pornography, maybe it's sex, whatever it might be that, that, you know, how do we shift that mindset that this is a huge sacrifice? We're giving it up. And then we see it, that this is this universe of new opportunities, that it is so much more. How, how do you explain that to people? Sure. Yeah. Molly, you, you phrased that in a great way. At first, I think it is a sacrifice. I'm not going to be yesy there. And, and oftentimes it's, it's the pain. And sometimes a doctor needs to tell us, look, your liver is shutting down. Your body is not responding well to this. So I think the fuel at first is, is, could be out of fear. I know it was for me. It was clear what was going to happen if I continue to drink, either suicide or yeah, not a good outcome. So at first, yeah, you can use that fear as a healthy fuel source. And it's a sacrifice for a bit. It is. But I think there's a light that will continue to grow that it is an opportunity of a lifetime. This, not a lot of people get the opportunity for a full reset in life. And I'm almost, I don't feel bad for them. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. But there's a lot of people that don't get this opportunity to completely rewrite their life in their 20s, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, whenever, whenever that time comes. But I think quitting drinking is the, is the opportunity of a lifetime for so many reasons. I mean, on a materialistic standpoint, I have a tracker that tracks the amount of money saved. I've saved over a hundred thousand dollars in alcohol or, or money spent on alcohol. That is not including Molly and Clarissa, the DUIs that it would have had or, or the operations or perhaps totaling a car. That number could be closer to 500,000. It, it could be, but opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, and really the money that doesn't matter and opportunity of a lifetime. What is that? Just to really get to know you, to get to know the authentic self, because we are so propped up in this world right now of defining ourselves with titles with professions, with diplomas, with items, with cars, with houses, the opportunity at hand. And I think this is where we have to go as a species is we have to, we have, we're so out of balance of who we are, what we really need. And I think the biggest opportunity is get to know yourself, get to know your song. And then, and then you get to sing that song for the rest of the world. That's who you are. That's, that's how you created. I just don't see normal drinkers, not normal drinkers, but I, I just don't see people who, who, who have yet to ditch the booze really fully explore who they are and, and why they're here. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest gifts of recovery and blessings that we get is we're not walking around every day with blinders on anymore. It's like we actually get to know ourselves and what we need and like how to take care of ourselves rather than just, you know, like you said, the material distractions all the time. Can you let us know what is next for you, Paul? Yeah, thank you, Clarissa. I've always been a visionary. I've always been a visionary and I, and I love creating things and I, I've been an entrepreneur as well. And I do have some ideas with that. I'm developing a hobby farm in Costa Rica. I want to get animals. I want to get goats. I already have four goats here in Bozeman, Montana, and they're great. But as I said, community and nature and going back to our nature, we are nature. So where do I self me see myself going professionally with recovery elevator is that I want to take people into nature. That is the product. Animals are very healing, very healing. Um, and I want to share that with people. And I think I'm going to be building that in Costa Rica. As I mentioned, uh, I already have the location and I would like to explore that perhaps a retreat center. I'm not really too sure. Perhaps an in-person cafe RE. That's our private community coffee shop where you're in the middle of nature in Costa Rica. And there's monkeys there almost daily. <laughs> and, and then the next question, you know, what's next for me personally I used to always have an answer to that. Again, the way we're conditioned and we grew up in the Western world is we need to have a five-year plan, 10-year plan. I'm really trying to come back, A, to the present moment, but I've noticed unconsciously that answer has shifted is I don't know where I'm going. And that's okay because I feel more guided than ever with the internal intelligence. Of course, I have plans. I have a plane ticket the next week to go to Peru, then to Costa Rica, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't want to put some finite parameters around that. I do have plans, of course, but I'm just going to lift up the, the, trying to lift up the paddles like the row, row, row your boat song. I mean, that's a great teaching that we learned as a kid. It really is. It's amazing. I'm, and I'm excited. I'm excited to see where this, where this goes for you. So before we let you go, or before we hit end on this episode, we always have, we have a signature question for all of our guests and I, and I like to tailor it for each one. So I would love to know if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about alcohol or addiction or recovery, what would it be? Yeah, that is a great question. I sometimes ask my, my guests on my podcast this. The answer today would, first off, would be a big embrace. Yo, what's up, buddy? How are you doing? You're kicking ass. All pathways lead to home. Drink one for me. Have fun. Do your thing. I'll be waiting for you on the other, on the other side. And there was a time when... It was, hey, stay away from alcohol. That shit's going to kill you. But really, as I mentioned in the healing process, the spiritual spiritual component has opened up in my life. And I'm very, very blessed. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But, you know, I was never on the wrong path. It was, I had labeled it incorrectly as I was. Something had malfunctioned in my life. But that was that was the journey. And I wouldn't be where I'm at right now without that journey. So I'm very thankful for it. I do have bad days. I do struggle with some things, but thankfully it's not alcohol today. And I would say, Hey man, do your thing. <laughs> Here's a hug. Drink one for me or not do your thing. And, uh, I'll be waiting for you. Thank you so much, Paul, for being here today. It's been such a pleasure to get to hear your recovery speak on our show. Yeah. Clarissa and Molly, I thank you for having me. Keep up the good work. You guys are doing really good stuff. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. 
Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.